Dragging your feet from your house to your car? From your car to your office? Who says your morning commute has to be boring? Ride the airwaves with CIUT 89.5 FM. We have what you need to make your rise and shine. Better than a double-double. Fall fundraising kicks off on Monday, November 15th. Help us reach our $100,000 goal. Your generous support keeps community radio vital. For more information, visit www.ciut.fm. Early donations are always appreciated. CIUT 89.5, the sound of your city. Stream CIUT at www.ciut.fm. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. A pleasure to have you all back out there in listener land. It's been, as always, a busy week. Uh, and we're delighted to have, again, a part of our series on successful activism. Um, we're delighted to have Dan Osborne as our first guest. And then we're looking at... Uh, a representative from Greenest City um, about community gardens. So it's a, a jam-packed show today. Please do stay tuned. Um, just to let you know, next week on the Radical Reverend Show is our biannual fundraising for the station because we're here at CIT 89.5 FM, the last uh, really drivener owned and operated and funded station in the whole of the greater Toronto area. Um, so we're delighted to help them out and to keep uh, this on the air in its 34th year. Uh, so I want to welcome my first guest, and I'm delighted to have him here. It's Dan Osborne. And Dan is the president of, in short, BCTGM Local 50, coming out of the United States. Um, and that's Bakery, uh, Confectionery, Tobacco, and Grain Millers Union. Uh, and they've uh, just had some success, and we're going to talk about that. But Dan, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, let's talk about you. Um, how did you get involved in the union? How did you get to be president of your local? You know, what motivated you? Talk about that. Yeah, well, I've been with uh, Kellogg Company for 18 years as a mechanic. Uh, I really didn't get into union leadership until about two years ago when, uh, you know, some of the older guys uh, started to retire off, older men and women started to retire off and uh, there was some leadership positions open. And I really started to see the writing on the wall and the way Kellogg's have changed the way they've treated people over the years. Uh, so I felt it was time to get involved in a, in a leadership role. I started off as uh, vice president and within six months we had a, a president step down for health reasons. And so I was able to uh, move into the position then. So we're talking to you. You're not in Canada. Where are you right now? And where were you born? I was born in Inglewood, Colorado, and I moved to Omaha, Nebraska. My dad worked for the Union Pacific Railroad. Uh, so we moved, I moved to Omaha when I was in second grade, and I've been here ever since. So, uh, you know, he was, he was a part of the union a long time ago uh, with the Union Pacific. He did move into, you know, management in his later years, but... Uh, so that's 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 how I ended up in Omaha. And, you know, the, the news for unions and unionization generally has not been great over the last uh, many years, either um, in the US or in Canada, quite frankly, we've been losing members, especially in private business unions. 
Um, so, you know, lately, though, I mean, the news has been amazing coming out of the States. I mean, we've, we've heard about John Deere, um, Nabisco, Kellogg's now, um, even IATSE, despite the horrendous uh, event that happened recently. Uh, uh, I mean, gains have been, are being made. Um, what do you think contributes to that just generally? Well, I think a lot of it stemmed from uh, the pandemic and the fact that, uh, you know, our working conditions during the pandemic uh, we're, we're, we're more difficult than what we were used to. Uh, you know, we've traditionally at uh, Kellogg's plants, it's a seven day a week, 360 day operation. So uh, we're used to working seven days a week in long hours, uh, 12 hours a day, sometimes 16 hours a day, sometimes. Uh, so when the pandemic struck, our numbers were already short due to, uh, what are they dubbing it, the, the great uh, withdrawal from work from people from the workforce, something to that effect. Uh, so, you know, our numbers were already short. The pandemic hits. We were, we were at one time over 100 uh, union members, factory workers short. So the only way to cover, you know, somebody's absence is uh, with somebody who's showing up to work. So we have what's called forced overtime. I work the uh, 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. shift. They can come up to me. I'm sorry, 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. They can come up to me anytime before 3 p.m. and tell me I have to work till 7 p.m. to cover an absence on second shift. So I will do that. Um, they can come up to me anytime up to 7 p.m. and tell me I have to be back in at 3 a.m. to cover an absence on uh, the night shift. So, you know, the, the hours can be grueling. And with the pandemic, you know, there was there was no reprieve from it. Um, you, you were forced to work those hours. Uh, our, our gripe is not, we, we, we aren't complaining about working those hours. Um, what we have a problem with and, and what's been driving it is, uh, you know, during that time, Kellogg's was making record profits. Uh, they made $5 billion in 2020, that's profit. They made 21 billion as a company. Our CEO took a 20% increase in his compensation as well as all the high level executives. Uh, so when it comes time for a contract, you know, after after we did that, I mean, we never shut the plant down one time for due to absences and not being able to run their production facilities. So, you know, now now we have this uh, contract in front of us, and, and the reason why we went out on strike is is because what we we want what's fair and equitable for the amount of work that we put in. And. Uh the effects of COVID on your workforce? Um, where did anybody get sick? What, what safety measures were put in place? I mean, that's asking a lot of workers just to show up really uh, at the height of the pandemic. Of course, I, I myself had uh, COVID last Thanksgiving. I was, I was out, I mean, I was, I was bedridden for four days, uh, you know, and then you have to do the 14 day quarantine after, after your symptoms go away. Uh, you know, a lot of that, that I think they they paid 14 days total COVID leave, uh, which you know is is good that they paid for that time off. But the problem is, you get COVID, you're off for your 14 days, um, and then you then they force you to go out through contact tracing. Uh, you know, tell you hey, you can't come into work because you've been in contact with somebody who's been known to have COVID. So now you're out without pay for that for that amount of time. And meanwhile, the other people that are in the plant have to make up for you not being there. Uh, so, you know, it, it was it was a, a hectic and, and, it, and it continues it, 
today, you know, with the Delta variant, it's, it, it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Uh, the COVID protocols are, were still in place when we went out on strike. They're, they're not the same with the uh, workers, the temporary workers that they're bringing in. We watch them come in on buses. None of them are wearing masks. You know, we had temperature checks. They're not doing that. So, you know, whatever they're doing on the inside right now, I guess it doesn't really matter to me. But they, I, I, I would say uh, that about Kellogg's is, is they did a good job, you know, uh, doing whatever they can, you know, to prevent the spread of COVID. And that's whether that's sending somebody out. There was a mask mandate uh, while you're inside the facility, very stringent hand washing policies and uh, things like that. They, they did the best that they could during that time. But you talked about temporary workers. So talk about that. Um, uh, yeah, so what they're doing is they're bringing temporary workers in. There's a company called Affamac Global. Um, what they do is they, they just provide work for people who have legal labor stoppages or, or strike, whatever you want to call it. And they bring them up from all around the country because, you know, there's, there's a working shortage as it is right now. So these guys are just coming in to make a quick buck. Uh, I was just told today they fired 40 of them last week. Uh, we we're hearing reports from the plant, uh, from inside the plant that 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 there there's a bunch of them sleeping on the ground that that passed out drunk. They're finding liquor bottles. Somebody even brought peanuts out to a line in a in a you know in a food manufacturing facility. So these guys don't care about the product. Not like not like we do. You know that's our job. We we've been making cereal, you know, for 75 years, and we we have centuries worth of experience. Uh, from our members that that have worked out there, and and everybody's passionate, and and definitely they they care for the product, and these guys simply don't. Uh, in 2013, uh, Kellogg's locked out our Memphis brothers and sisters, Memphis, Tennessee, over a supplemental contract. They were out for 10 months. Uh, they tried to you know pull a fast one on them there. They lost. Um, and, uh, you know, we got back in the plant and they got ordered to pay them back pay. But during that time, they used the same company, Affomat Global. And uh, there was a viral video that went around of one of the temporary workers urinating on the Rice Krispies conveyor line and then panning over to the Kellogg sign. And that food was consumed. They didn't cut that. That video didn't get posted until after the fact. So. You know, these are the kind of people that they're bringing in. They don't, like I said, they don't care. They're just there to make a quick buck, get in and get out. And uh, you know, we just we just want to go to work. We want to go back to work, and we we want to go back to work with with a, a, a fair contract. Um, that that kind of labor used to be called scab labor back in the day. Um, and yeah, it's, that's it's what wild. it's still called. Yeah, and it's <laughs> wild that there uh, there's a company that whose whole mandate is just to provide scab labor. Um, yeah. Pretty, pretty outrageous. Um, so like, yeah. So, so talk about, you know, what, what kinds of, you know, dollars you all are making right now and then, and, and what you're asking for and how likely all of it seems. I, I mean, this is a company that, as you've said, has already lost, um, uh, you know, in a situation. So yeah, tell, tell us about, you know, the, what the working conditions are like there right now, other than the forced overtime, which sounds horrendous in itself. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know what? What the one of the major things we're fighting is the two-tier wage system. This this was a, a system that I believe was introduced in the '80s, 
Um, it's it's all designed to break unions. You know, it, it divides workers against each other because the two tier, you have a lower tier worker and an upper tier worker. Um, that's what we have right now. 30% of our workforce is on a lower tier. Now, what does our union, that mean? What does that mean? Like, what's the difference? Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. So, no. so the lower tier worker is making about $12 an hour less. They are paying higher insurance premiums. They have less vacation and they have less vacation pay. Uh, so that's 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 the big difference. Uh, you know, they work the same hours. They do the exact same jobs that the upper tier employees do. Uh, they just they just get paid less. It's a cost savings for the company. But like I said, the the, the major driver behind the two tier system is is simply to break the union. That's uh, you know, apples and apples. So. Um, th currently 30% of our workforce is on the lower tier. The, uh, our union agreed to that in 2015 when the company threatened to close two of our American, uh, North American plants. If we did not ratify the contract, cereal sales were at a pretty steep decline. Uh, so we, we did take that concession in 2015. Fast forward to 2021, now they're making record profits. Like I stated earlier, you know, they're taking big increases in their compensation. So we feel like we should be able to go back to, you know, what, what we had prior to 2015. And as you, you were saying earlier, by the way, you just tuned in, uh, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm speaking to Dan Osborne. Uh, president of local, uh, a local in the States. Um, currently, um, of course, you've probably heard about it. I hope you've heard about it, although we'll, we'll talk to Dan about it and Dan talk, talk about the news getting out of there. Um, I mean, we've heard about it, but it's, it's often in mainstream media, you know, it'll be, you know, it's not a lead story um, most places and, and it tends to get buried. So, um, so, so, so tell our listeners what, what's going on with Kellogg's right now, um, just in case, you know, this is all news to them. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we had a contract with Kellogg's, the Bakery Confectionery Tobacco Grain Millers Union, um, and which it expired, and uh, it actually expired in 2020, October 5th at mid, October 4th at midnight, excuse me, in 2020. Uh, we could not reach an agreement then. Uh, we agreed to work under a one-year extension. Uh, so fast forward to 2021, October 4th at midnight, it expired again. Once again, we could not reach a resolution on our contract, uh, especially what, what we, we believed was fair and equitable for all, the, all of our members. Uh, so we took the strike vote and we chose to go out on strike to fight for better wages, uh, better benefits, and equal pay for for all our members. And uh, so where are you at now in negotiations? What's going on right now? Uh, right now, as of this minute, uh, we are not at the negotiating table. On uh, Tuesday and Wednesday of this week, we were back at the negotiating table. Uh, and we once again could not find a resolution. So we are back at the picket lines, uh, still on strike. And we're right now we're making preparations to uh, strike through the winter. We're upgrading all our temporary enclosures and figuring out heat sources and everything else that's got to go into feeding our members and keeping them warm during the winter while we uh, continue to fight. And meanwhile, scab labor is being brought in. 
Um, but Correct. but I've heard hopeful signs. I mean, certainly in the in, in kind of the not mainstream press, there's been hopeful signs about your strike and and generally take you know there there's some precedents happening down there. So so what are the precedents that give you hope down there? Uh, well, I'll start with uh, not necessarily precedents, but but the outpouring of uh, support we've we've had from the community, uh, not just locally but nationally, even internationally. You know, we've we've had donors from Canada. Um, South America uh, that have donated to our relief funds uh, that that goes to help uh, our people out while we're out on strike, not getting wages and health benefits. Uh, you know, a lot of our members suffer from illnesses or wives or children, so you know that's a that's a big deal for us, and and we're trying to do everything we can to help. Um, you know, or the donate the donator, the, excuse me, the donors are doing everything that they can help. Um, so, so that's that's exact that's exactly where we're at right now. We're 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 digging our trenches deeper, and and we're just going to continue to fight. Um, we've also been hearing about um, about Nabisco and and of course John Deere. John Deere seemed to <clears throat> to seem to seem to to settle. Um, um, I, I mean, and you talked about you know the last event in 2013. Um, you know that, and you had already settled for this two tier uh, compromise. Um, so, I mean, the, so is it the contrast really between the, the incredible profits of, of companies and the incredible risk that workers are taking? Because we certainly haven't seen this kind of union uh, militancy in a long time in North yeah, America. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely 100% what it's about. Um, you know, and I, and I mentioned the fact the pandemic, I think the pandemic made a lot of people realize, uh, you know, the worth. Uh, they called everybody an essential worker. You know, if we're if we're so essential, then we should have a fair a fair contract. And and John Deere's contract, uh, I, I read through theirs. That looks uh, like they got a very favorable contract. Um, their CEO took a hundred and sixty percent increase in compensation. So uh, Nabisco got a favorable contract when they won Frito Olay. Uh, there was Pepsi. So. Uh, the uh, Hollywood workers, you know, the people who run the cameras, uh, they came very close. They took a strike vote. They voted to go on strike, and but they got a, a favorable contract at the very last minute. So uh, we're we're hoping to follow suit, obviously, uh, with with Kellogg, uh, you know, as they still continue to make their record profits. Uh, so we're we're just hoping to get a piece of that pie too for you know the money. I mean, they, they, there wouldn't be a, a company without its employees, right? Absolutely. Um, just to, to let you know up here, um, the two-tier contract issue has also been a huge issue. Um, uh, GM workers, uh, for example, um, part of our catchment area for the show, um, and this was uh, going back pre-COVID, but settled for that kind of two-tier result. Even our teachers, who are a pretty strong union up here, um, have a kind of version of that uh, as well. This seems to be the way most uh, employers are going in most places. Um, and, uh, it, it, you know, it, your success on that front would, would set a precedent for a lot of people in terms of upcoming contract negotiations. Um, do, you see, do you see yourself as trendsetters there at Kellogg's? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, if, if we win, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, it's it's not just about the 470 people in Omaha or the 1,400 people in the ready-to-eat cereal plants. What what it's really about is is it's becoming about is is a movement that's sweeping across not only our, our nation but but probably your nation as well. 
um, and people people are 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 seeing uh, other unions be successful, and so they you know they throw their hat in the ring too, and and hopefully they can all get favorable contracts and follow suit, you know, and and we could help minimize corporate greed. I mean, Nabisco must be like, that's close to home in your industry. So, I mean, does that, is that the same union or is that a different union? Yeah, it is the same. same union. It is the so, same. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, like I, I'm interviewing you now here uh, on the show, but I'm touch wood pretty, we're pretty convinced you're going to win up here. Certainly uh, you must be hearing favorable signs. Um, maybe of course, uh, not everything you ask for necessarily, but enough to um, enough to to make the strike worthwhile. Do you see that happening? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the thing that we have on our side that Kellogg's doesn't is is time. Uh, you know, time time is obviously a factor for us too. While we're not making wages, you know, a strike really it hurts both sides. Uh, you know, especially initially. Uh, but they don't have as much time on their hands because they, they, they are tasked to, you know, produce products. And if they're not producing their products, their, their time's going to run out. Speaking here to, uh, again, Dan Osborne, uh, president of the local um, of the Bakery Confectionery Tobacco and Grain Millers Union, um, uh, who are currently out on strike at uh, Kellogg's. So uh, Kellogg's are on our shelves here in Canada. <laughs> so uh, maybe just boycott that, move on to something else until the strike gets uh, gets settled. Um, is that part of your call for consumers? I mean, how can we help? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the easiest thing for somebody to do is make a conscious decision when they're at the grocery store. You know, Kellogg's isn't the only cereal brand in town. Um, you know, when you're just going down the aisle, I just keep in the back of your head, you know, oh shoot, that's right, Kellogg's is on strike. These, 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 these people are fighting for, for a better way of life. You know, like I said, during a time where your you're, Kellogg's is a giant. So uh, there's, there's plenty of other cereal to choose from and that's the easiest thing anybody could do. Absolutely. And yeah, maybe let, uh, let the workers at your local grocery store know why you're doing it too. Just pass the news along. Um, I'm sure winters in Omaha aren't much better than winters up here. It's not yeah, nice to be out be on pretty straight. brutal. Yeah. Um, so we hope that this gets settled before. So when, are, when, when is the next negotiation round happening? Is there any sign of it? No, there's nothing scheduled right now. Mm. So we, we're just going to continue to put pressure on Kellogg's, uh, both in the media and politically. Um, and, and, and hope that, that, that we can go back to the negotiating table soon and get a good resolution. And meanwhile, scab labor is being used to keep something happening in there. If not, That's correct. And, and you have to remember also, if you're a consumer and you pick up a box of Kellogg cereal, and I mentioned, you know, that guy urinating on the cereal, you don't know who's making that cereal now. Uh, and it, it certainly isn't, it, it isn't union members who, who have dedicated their lives to it. You know, these are just people making a quick buck. So that's something to remember as well. Just before I let you go, I want to talk about the press coverage. You've got some, but it's never enough. Um, any breakthroughs there in mainstream press in the U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. I've done I've done uh, interviews on NBC Live, ABC Live. I've done, you know, multiple radio shows. I've done podcasts. Uh, talked to Bloomberg, New York Times, Washington Post, Huffington Post. Uh, everybody wants to know what we're all about, and uh, so far it's been over 30 days we've been on strike. We're still staying, staying pretty relevant in the conversation. 
Well, certainly you're relevant to this conversation here on this show. And, uh, and please let me know, um, let us know what happens because we will update the listeners. Uh, meanwhile, following along, how else can we help you other than just don't you know, bypass Kellogg's when you go out to shop for your groceries? Um, uh, is there, you mentioned donations, like where if people want to help um, in a financial sense, even though our dollar's not quite your dollar, <laughs> sure. where, should they, sure. where should they send their donations to? Yeah, uh, thank you for asking that. It's uh, you could go to bctgm50g.com, and you can click on the donate here link, and Fantastic. then uh, you can donate through GoFundMe or PayPal from that link. Yeah, and you've got you've got a Facebook site too. Um, so people, if you think think Kellogg's, can Kellogg strike um, makes it easy to search and find um, and support the workers. Um, well, Dan, thank you for all you're doing and uh, good luck, Godspeed, and hopefully uh, this gets settles, settled before the snow flies. Yeah, yeah, okay. thank you very much. Take care, solidarity. Thanks okay. so much. Thank you. The sound of your city, CIUT 89.5, Toronto. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. We're so delighted you're listening into this series. And thank you for your comments out there in listener land. Uh, really take them to heart. We always respond. We always listen. Uh, and uh, thank you. Um, it's been quite a ride. And it's no different today. You just heard Dan. Um, and he was speaking to us uh, from uh, uh, from Ohio. So now we're, we find ourselves in Richmond, Virginia. <laughs> Same union though, different person. And this is the Bakery Confectionery Tobacco and Grain Millers Union. And I'm so excited to speak to Darlene Carpenter. Uh, she's the first woman who's a business agent in her local um, 358. And we're going to talk about um, another really important action by a private sector union and how, uh, how well that went really um because we need some inspiration boy <laughs> you know in these pandemic plague days we need some inspiration here on the radical reverend show so keep those comments coming we'd love to hear from you and we're going to keep this series going as well but let's talk to darlene darlene welcome to the show it's great to have you on oh thank you for having me so let's start with you. Like, you know, what got you involved in union work? What got you involved in the union? And and tell me about that. Okay. Well, um, believe it or not, when I started working for Nabisco, it's the first union I had ever worked for. So being there and seeing how things were ran and the way the company treated the people, I wanted to get more involved in my union. So I started out on the executive board and on the grievance committees. And I just kind of worked my way up from there. I decided this year that I was gonna run for office. So I ran for the business agent and financial secretary and I won. <laughs> I took um, office in June. And like you said, I am the first woman ever to be in this position for our local. And I take pride in it. Um, this is something that I have a passion for and my biggest passion is to make sure our people are treated fairly. Now, did you grow up in a union family? Like, did you come to, you know, like what, what got you? You say you saw how the people are treated. Well, I mean, people in a number of companies aren't treated particularly well, but union is a different thing. So like what, what led to that? I did not grow up in a union family. Um, it's five of us kids out of my family and none of us have ever been involved in a union. 
So I'm the first one for that too. Um, but it's just the fact that being at this company and knowing that the union had my back, that was something really great because I've never seen or been a part of anything like that, that, you know, you had somebody there to support you. And I like that. And that just made me want to get more involved in it. And I, I guess my curiosity got the best of me too. I just wanted to know what was going on. Mm-hmm. You know, wanted to be a part of it, wanted to have a say, say so. And, um, and here I am today. And I feel like I'm doing it for the people that are there. They're my family. I see those people more than I do my own family with the hours that we work. So they are my family. They have my back and I have their back. And that's what a union's all about. Yeah. Um, so tell us about Nabisco. What were you doing? What, what's your job there? What, um, what kind of work did you do? And do you do? Well, I am no longer in the plant. I took this office back in June. So I'm completely out of the plant now. But when I was in the plant, I actually worked into a, a department that was called EHS, Environmental Health and Safety Department. We were responsible for the cleaning of the plant. We cleaned the trolls. Um, I drove a forklift. I drove scrubbers. Um, we cleaned the lines. We, we did it all. You're a hero. You're like this. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> so, so tell me about the working conditions. What led to the action? Um, you know, what went on there? Well, back in 2016, the company took away our pension. And that was a hard blow. And everyone was angry, but we didn't do anything about it. We didn't stand up. Um, and I'm not going to blame it on the leadership that we had at that time. I don't know all the circumstances behind why we didn't go on strike. We should have, but we didn't. And all that anger has been building up since 2016. And then here comes the pandemic. And the company worked us to the bone. And when I say to the bone, we will be enforced. A lot of us will be enforced daily, 16-hour shifts. You know, we were already scared to be out because of the pandemic. We didn't want to bring this stuff home to our families, but the company didn't care. The bottom line was how much more money they were going to put in their pocket. They knew that uh, the families were sitting at home. They were scared. But they also knew they were eating the snacks. So profit came before the people. And it got to the point, you you just say, when is enough enough? We're not going to take this anymore. So we, we, you know, that, that's kind of what started the entire thing. Um, And just the way the company lied to us. And when I say lie, I'm not exaggerating at all. They lied to us time and time again. They would make promises to us that they didn't keep. They, they didn't care about us. We were nothing more than a number to them. So talk about COVID and what it was like in the plant. 16-hour shifts, that's just unbelievable. Um, like, were there safety measures? Did people get sick? What happened during the pandemic? Well, we, we, you know, we did have safety protocols in place. We were doing the screening at the gates before we came in. We were wearing face masks. So, yeah, we had those things in place. But people were still catching COVID. So... You would be sent home if you had been around somebody or suspected to be around someone that had COVID. Um, And the protocol was for the first week or so that you were out with COVID, it started at 14 days. 
and the company would pay you if you tested positive. Well, then they changed that policy and they were actually giving you points for being out that go against your record for having COVID. Or they would say, well, you, you tell them, I'm sorry, but I've, I've tested positive for COVID. You'd call the company and you would identify people that you work near so they could get those people out of the plant so they could be tested. They weren't even telling the people. I mean, it got that bad. It was it was a really scary time. You know, we, we have a lot of older people that work at the plant. They have health issues. And then with the uncertainty of the COVID, not only were you afraid going to work, but you were exhausted because of the hours you put in. So it affected your mental and your physical. It, it was rough. And of course, the families too, your families when you went home. Absolutely. I mean, you're worried about bringing something home to your family. Again, the company did not care. The only thing that they were mindset on was the bottom dollar and getting the production out the door. And they were making record profits, I'm sure. They made record profits. That is for sure. Yeah. And they did not share it with any of the workers either. So, you know, what was the straw that, you know, broke the proverbial camel's back here? Like what made you go out? Like what happened? Lead us through that. Well, after working this pandemic and the 16 hour shifts, we were up for our contracts. We went to negotiations. The first negotiations I was not a part of because I was not in office at that point. But the negotiations did not go well. The company had decided that they wanted to do a two-tier system with our health care. And we're just coming out of a pandemic, and actually we're still in a pandemic, but they wanted to do a two-tier health system with any new hires. And we said, no, we don't sell out people. We just don't do that. Not only that, they wanted to switch us all to 12-hour shifts. So on the 12-hour shifts now, that was taking away our ability for our overtime. This is right after they had just closed down two of our plants here in the United States. They had closed down a plant in Atlanta, Georgia, and in New Jersey. So now they're saving all this money. It's like $300, $300 million they had saved with the close down of these plants. We lost over a 1,000 union members when they shut these plants down, and they still wanted concessions. And when I say concessions, they were coming hard at us. And we said, enough is enough. We didn't go anywhere in our first negotiations. And the leadership come back to the plant. And we said, that's it. We're, we're, not, we're not doing it anymore. I ended up taking the reins in June. And we ended up with a new president also, Mr. Keith Bragg. And I have to, I have to give kudos to Keith. I, I love my Keith. He's a great man. And together we sat down and we said, what are we going to do? I said, we're brand new in office and we just walked into a hornet's nest. We took office in June, August 16th. We took the people out on strike. And it was liberating, not just for us, but for the workers. I have never seen so many of them smiling because it was like their chance. And I, I some people say, was it your chance to stick it to the company? No, we weren't sticking to the company. We were standing up. Enough was enough. 
Yeah, I'm sure the executives uh, at Nabisco were still doing okay. <laughs> I'm sure they oh, were yeah. still doing okay. Yeah. Um, so uh, if you're just tuned in, I'm, I'm talking to Darlene Carpenter here on the Radical Reverend Show, and we're talking about, uh, and first of all, this kick-ass woman, I'm so delighted to have her on the show, um, who is the first woman in her role um, as business agent um, in her union, uh, and talking about the strike. Um, so so now, talking to Dan earlier, you know, um, let's na- name it for what it was. I mean, the company brought in, uh, bringing in a Kellogg scab labor. Did that happen at Nabisco? It did. They brought in the scabs. Um, they were bringing in two busloads of scabs. Um, but, you know, it was funny. The first day we were out there, we, wa- we caught the company by surprise. They never expected us to strike. They thought we were bluffing because we didn't do it back in 2016. But when they realized what was going on the second week, they started bringing in the scabs. And they actually paid truck drivers. These 18-wheelers were coming in and out with empty trailers each time. So we stopped the truck drivers and said, hey, what do you have on there? We know they're not running. We know they're not Nothing's being produced. They say we are being paid to come in and out. So now we know, okay, not only are we out here fighting, they're using psychological warfare on us, making us think that they're doing something to get the people to cross back over. Um, With the scabs in there, they didn't do anything. They actually, they tore the plant up. The plant was a mess when we got back in there. They had unskilled people trying to do a skilled labor job. It does not happen. And yet the company kept putting out on the media that they had this contingent plan. They were running. Everything was going to be fine. It was all lies. Every single, I mean, we laughed about it because we knew they, they lied to us all the time. Now they're lying to the general public. They had no plan. And they were in there basically destroying the plan. Wow. And um, so you, you, you went out. Um, talk about being on, on the line. Talk about being on strike. What was that like? What, what did your days look like? And, and you know, and, and yeah, talk, start there. Let's start. There. Well, when we went on a strike, we went out on August 16th. My president and I had talked about it the night before. And we did not let anybody know to the last minute. So that that was kind of strange, but I was out at the area that we were going to have the people meet us at. The president was in the plant. He told everyone at 7.30 a.m. that morning, at 8 o'clock, hit the clock. We are on strike. And the people were like stunned, but yet ecstatic. And everybody, is this for real? At 8 o'clock, He said that those people were lined up at the clock, smiling, laughing. They were just, they they were ecstatic. Again, I used the word liberation. They felt liberated for doing this. Uh, We get out there the first day. It's the first strike I've ever done. First strike my president, Keith, had ever done. And most of the people on the plant had never been on strike. This plant has never been on strike. So we knew we were going to have a lot of speed bumps ahead of us, and we did. We learned, we, we worked through it, but for the most part, everything went smoothly. We decided that we were going to do a 24-hour strike as far as 24 hours a day. 
that straight line started at eight o'clock that morning and it did not end until we got a ratification of contract. You could come out there at 3 a.m. in the morning, that straight line was being manned. We had um we had our first shift, second shift, and third shift. Our third shift, we called them the night, the night crawlers. They were awesome. They had DJs out there. They were dancing. They were having a good time. We had our railroad renegades. They blocked the railroad. So we had a certain group of people that took care of that. And um, it, it was awesome. Not only that, that's how we learned about solidarity. The other unions that started coming out and supporting us, it was overwhelming at times. I actually caught myself tearing up because of the love and support they showed us, bringing us supplies, you know, walking the lines with us. And then the community really kicked it up a notch. There were days out there that you just felt, you know, how much longer is this going to take? You know, when are, when are we going to reach something? And just that person going by and beeping a horn, it just gave you that uplift again that, it, you know what, we can do this, guys. So the strike really... It brought our union members closer together. In the plant, you didn't have time to talk to everyone. You were doing a job. And with the three shifts, you might see somebody by face and say hello to them and all, but you didn't know them. We had time on that strike line to get to know each other. We started bonding and we heard each other's stories and it made us stronger. One day longer, one day stronger. That was their motto. Darlene, you're making me tear up. Talking to oh. Darlene Carpenter here on the Radical Reverend <laughs> Show. Uh, this uh, incredible woman um, and the strike, um, you know, she's in Richmond, Virginia, and we're talking about the strike against uh, Nabisco with Nabisco workers. So you, you mentioned speed bumps. What were they? What were some of the hurdles that happened? Um, you know, it was, it was probably more organized. And we had started about two weeks out you know, knowing that most likely we were going on strike. So, you know, some of the first things I had to do was I made sure I contacted our local police to let them know that there was a possibility and, you know, what help we needed from them to make sure our people stayed safe out there. Um, I had to find parking. You know, we couldn't be on the company property at all for this strike. And we're on a main road. So luckily an, an employee that had retired owned a restaurant and allowed us all to park there and we shuffled people back and forth to the site um making the signs you know we, we had to have signs made picket signs and just the scheduling would probably be the hardest thing it was 436 people that we were trying to make schedules for so they knew what time to show up when to leave so it, it, we had some speed bumps there but we worked through them yeah and and strike pay you meant you yeah we yeah. we had the strike pay and um our international was awesome they they supported us with the strike pay and um i was very fortunate that i still have a very awesome secretary staff at the at the union hall and they were the ones that would distribute the money weekly to our employees um, not a lot of money. When people think of strike pay, they, they think you make it on, you know, oh, your paycheck. It was $105 a week. You know, that's for some of our people, that was gas money just to get back and forth to the strike. But it was better than nothing. Um, 
And we weren't out there for the strike money. We were out there for our livelihoods, our future, you know, so. So what was a turning point? When did, when did you start, when did you start winning? (laughs) We started winning when we noticed that the stocks were going down. We were watching it. We had, we had people that would watch it every day and they would post it. So, so social media was a really big part in our campaign. Um, I had never used Twitter. I had never used Instagram or TikTok. I'm an old-fashioned Facebook. Here we go. <laughs> and we started posting, and we started telling our people any and everything. You put it on social media. Get the word out there. And our other plants up in Portland and in Chicago started doing the same thing. Social media took off. And that's how we got the word out there to the public. Hey, this is how we're being treated, guys. Boycott the products. Help us out. Um, and that worked. That that really worked. Yeah, it's astounding, right? I mean, especially oh, yeah. Twitter, because such yeah, a political I mean, beast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it puts pressure on politicians. It puts pressure on everybody. It's good. So, it's, it's, it's so, a great tool. Yeah. So, so tell us then. So, you're out in sort of mid-August. So, what's going on? Talking to the company? Any back and forth there? At first, there wasn't, and then the company did reach out to us. But before they reached out to us, they put an offer out on their um, site that they had never even talked to the union about. And we were like, are you kidding me? And that was one of their conquer and divides. They were trying to divide the union out of the line. Of course, people you know, out there going, what is going on? Y'all didn't tell us we y'all had this offer. I said, because we never got it. I said, that's some more of the company's underhanded stuff, guys. But um, when they did that, our international had reached out to them and said, hey, you, you guys, you know you're not supposed to be doing this kind of stuff. So they wanted to come back to the table, and that was their offer, which we already knew that, that they still weren't where we needed them to be. But we did meet with them again, and we finally came to a ratification. We only gave them two days at the table because we told them we, we've given them so much time. And every time, is, it was only thing we would hear from the company is what they needed and what they had to have. And, you know, this is a negotiation, guys. You give and you take. It's not all concessions. And they wanted all concessions from the get-go. The first day that we went back right before ratification to the table, we were up in Baltimore, Maryland. We gave the company two days. Otherwise, we were wasting our time. First day went a little slow. They still weren't where we needed them at. But it went a little slow. The second day at one o'clock in the morning, the union reps, and I was one of them because I was at that negotiation table, we got up and we walked out on the company. We told them enough's enough, we're done. At 1.30 in the morning, they were calling us back downstairs. We had our offer that we could recommend to our people and we had a good offer. Um, So we had everything tied up by 2 a.m. They were still playing games, and I guess they finally realized that enough was enough. But um, we came back. We we took the votes with each local. All the votes were counted at one time. And that was done on purpose also because 
you don't want the company to know what what plant was your lowest plant on voting. So we took our Portland plant, we took our Chicago plant and our Richmond plant and our Georgia plant, the, the small DSA part of it. And we took all the votes up to our international up in Maryland. And we counted them right there, dumped them on the table so you didn't know whose was whose. We counted them and we had overwhelmingly, yes. Wow. So, I mean, this is just a celebration, right? So, so oh, how, long were you, how long were you out then? How long did this take? For Portland actually went out on strike first. Okay. They went out a week before everyone else. For Richmond, we were out for 34 days. And let me tell you, that 34 days, I felt the weight on my shoulders. You know, I kept thinking to myself, darling, you have got to win this. You just brought <laughs> 436 people out of the plant and they are counting on you. I felt the weight on my shoulders. When we got that ratification, I have never, ever been so happy. Um, and I, I, I'm not going to you know, lie about it. I was scared. So I've never done anything like this. I was scared. But I, but I was not going to give up. I was, and my people, let me tell you something. These people down here in Richmond have a heart. And they, they had the conviction and they said to them, we went out there every day and we would fist bump and say, we got this, guys. We got this. You got to stay strong. And I, I'm proud of those people. I'm proud to say I'm a part of their union. I bet the mood in the plant is very different from before you went out, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, the sad thing is, though, the company's still a little sore with us, but we'll work past that. <laughs> I mean, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I'm talking to Darlene Carpenter here about the Nabisco strike and the win. Um, just like for sure, I mean, we've been witnessing over the decades, you know, rate of unionization going down, you know, like losing things that we've fought for over, you know, generations and, and not, to, you know, and all of a sudden there seems to be this new wind, um, not just in your union, but just like right across the states, we're looking at, you know, the John Deere situation, our Yahtzee and others, you know, private sector unions, which have not been a growth area. What do you think, I mean, the, I, I, you know, is it the pandemic? I mean, the pandemic really brought a lot of these issues out, but, you know, what's your take on that? I agree with you. The, the pandemic brought a lot of it out. And I think just all in all, the workers are tired of being taken advantage of. It's the corporate greed out here. And again, you ask yourself, when is enough enough? How much money do you have to make? You know, you're making this money off the back of these hard workers. You know, show them some love, show them some respect and dignity. And I think that right there is, you know, I feel like we kind of made history down here in Richmond. You have, you have. With, with this strike and, and winning. And we knew that all eyes were on us. But people were saying, you know, if they can do it, we can do it. And, it, and, I, and I think it gave people that, that sense of power that, you know what, it is possible Let's start standing up for ourselves. And you're seeing that everywhere now that the workers said enough, enough. We're not taking it anymore. Either treat us right, give us the respect, give us the dignity, or this is what you get in consequences for it. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, incredible. I mean, absolutely an inspiration and an inspiration because I, you know, so often you hear from unions, especially the leadership, you know, the, the just endless grievances, right? Um, but I mean, it's the militancy. At the end of the day, the only thing you've got is your labor. You withdraw it. They got to talk, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know? you got to talk. So um, kudos to you. So what's the next step for Darlene Carpenter now? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll be a rock star. No, there you <laughs> go. Joking. Um, what something that I have done because of what I've learned from this strike with the solidarity is my president Keith Bragg and I had drove out to um, Michigan, and we walked the picket line with the brothers and sisters from Kellogg's, and we took supplies out to them. And wanted to let them know, hey, this is what we just came off of. We won. This is what worked for us. We shared some of our, you know, strategies with them. But just to let them know that we were standing in solidarity with them. We also went to Pennsylvania and walked the picket line with the Kellogg's people there. And um, that was a great experience. And we have gone out with the barbers out in Fort Lee, Virginia, walked with them, and they have just won their contract. So that was awesome. And we were planning on trying to go out or at least um, send monetary donations or whatever was needed to John Deere. So we're, we're going to really pick up the pace with the solidarity with the other unions and what they're going through because we know how it feels and we've been there. Yeah. It's um, called paying it for it. Absolutely. I mean, uh, and Darlene, I just have to say this has been just a thrill. So, uh, uh, out there in listener land, um, yeah, pick up your paces. <laughs> you can do it too. You can do it Absolutely. too. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much. We've, we've run out of time. It's perfect. Um, uh, Darlene, keep on keeping on and, and let us know. Like I, I, I said to Dan, like we're we're with them. They're going to win, right? They're going to Absolutely. Win. Thank you so much for having me. No Solidarity problem. Union Absolutely. Strong. Absolutely. And if you come to Toronto, say hi. And if I come to Richmond, I'll do it too. Please. <laughs> Take Please. care, darling. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Your radio, CIUT 89.5, the sound of your city.